Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. This is Casty Zachary, fashion historian and your host for today's and future episodes, as it is now April's turn, my co-host, to take a well-deserved break. She will be back in the coming weeks. And as our regular listeners know, I have been on maternity leave for the past six weeks. This is my first episode back in well over a month. So thank you all for your very sweet messages about my little Leo. Welcome to this world in May. It's been quite the adventure already, um, but I am beyond happy to be back doing what I love like talking to other historians about their captivating work. And that includes today's guest, Dr. Rachel Hope Cleves, who wrote a book that documents the most remarkable love story of two 19th century tailors, Charity Bryant and Sylvia Drake. But what's so extraordinary about Charity and Sylvia's 44-year relationship, as Dr. Cleves shows us, is how apparently unextraordinary it was. With same-sex marriage only being legalized in the United States in 2015, it's incredible to consider that Charity and Sylvia's marriage was not only recognized, so this is a marriage between two women, but they were respected by their small, close-knit community of Weybridge, Vermont, and this was in the 19th century. These women were really beloved by all who knew them, and that they were tailors in that community allows us this entry point to talk about their beautiful love story with Dr. Cleves who's the author of the book, as I mentioned, Charity and Sylvia, A Same-Sex Marriage in Early America. And before I welcome her to the show, I just want to take a small note, dress listeners, that Dr. Cleves and I recorded this interview during a thunderstorm. She lives in a tin-roofed house, and occasionally you can hear pine cones hitting the tin roof. So please excuse that added unexpected noise. You are not going to want to miss this interview. I am so pleased to welcome Dr. Cleves to the show. Rachel, welcome to Dressed. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. It's my pleasure to be here. So can you please briefly introduce us to Charity and Sylvia? Who were they? When did they live? Where did they live? And what was it about their relationship and their story that compelled you to dedicate an entire book to it? Because it's pretty incredible. Well, thank you. So Charity Bryan and Sylvia Drake were two early American women, both them were born during the revolutionary period in Massachusetts, and they met in the early 19th century, so in the early 1800s, and fell in love with each other and decided to make a life together, which they did in the small town of Waybridge, Vermont, where Sylvia had moved when she was a child. And they spent the rest of their lives together from about 1807 to 1851, when Charity died, sharing one bed, one home one heart, uh, you know, one life together and known by the community and their family and friends as a married couple. 
And I have to say, having just recently read this book, it's such a beautiful narrative. It was such an incredible feat of research as well. We're going to dive into the details of the relationship in a bit. But first, I wanted to talk to you about your source material for this book, because it's actually quite extensive, um, especially in relationship to just two people. And what was it like, quote unquote, discovering these women's incredible love story in the archives? And what were your archives? So the material is hugely extensive, and that was one of the incentives I had for writing the book. So I first came across them actually when I was researching my dissertation, which became my first book about American reactions to the violence of the French Revolution. And I was reading a book of letters by a 19th century newspaper editor and poet named William Cullen Bryant. And in the first half of the 19th century, William Cullen Bryant, or mid-19th century, William Cullen Bryant was a real celebrity. He was probably the most famous poet of his time for a while. So he published a book in the 1850s in which he recounted paying a visit to his aunt, who was Charity Bryant in Vermont. And in this book of letters, he described Charity and Sylvia's relationship together. And he described it in language that mimics the form of the marriage in the Book of Common Prayer that we're all familiar with in sickness and in health, you know, et cetera, et cetera, for better or for worse. And so when I was reading that book, I was struck by the fact that this source from the 1850s was not just capturing what appeared on the surface to be a same-sex or lesbian relationship, but that a 19th century person was able to write about this relationship as a marriage and that it was publicly understood as a marriage, that it wasn't a piece of private writing. This was a published source that was broadly consumed by a popular audience. And so it was that discovery it was a surprise to me because I thought I was an expert in, you know, when I was a dissertator. <laughs> I, was, I was completing my graduate studies, but I thought I knew like the first half of the 19th century pretty well. And it was just so outside of my expectations. And just to be clear, it did not surprise my expectations at all that there were women who loved women in the first half of the 19th century. That I assumed would be a continuity throughout history. What surprised me was that they could publicly be understood and tolerated and even loved as a married couple or something akin to a married couple. So I started looking for sources to get back to your question about sources. And I immediately discovered that there was, in fact, this huge repository of information about them. Some of that is due to the fact that Charity was the aunt of this person who became a celebrity. And she had always had a correspondence with both her nephew and with his parents with whom she was very close. And so it gave her uh, personal papers a historical significance to people in the late 19th century who decided to preserve the papers. So some of it was attributable to her relationship with her nephew, William Cullen Bryant. Some of the preservation of her papers, I think, was attributable to the fact that she seemed like such a remarkable person to the people who knew her at the time. So she had you know, a certain celebrity among her her smaller circle of acquaintances, even though it wasn't like a public celebrity in the way that William Cullen Bryant's celebrity was. So uh, it also just happened that when I 
looked to see if there were sources, it turned out that the two largest sort of collections, one of them was at the Henry Sheldon Museum in Middlebury, Vermont, where coincidentally I had paid a visit the previous summer and I had been camping in Vermont and I went into this museum out of curiosity because I'm a history nerd, obviously. And if there's like a local history museum, I'm there. <laughs> so I go in and I was like, you know, places like this, who even knows what's in the archives? Such treasures, you know? And then I look at like, not, you know, nine months later, I'm looking for sources about these women. And it turns out it's in that very museum. And then the other big repository was in a regional history center in Northern Illinois at Northern Illinois University, where I had just accepted my first job. And so I felt like there was some kismet going on. Right, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I had to do this project. But then once I started researching it, I found that, you know, not only were there sources in Vermont and not only were there sources in Illinois, but there were extensive sources at Hofstra University in Long Island, where William Cullen Bryant ended up living uh, in Long Island. So his many of his papers ended up there. I found sources in Washington State and um, California and Massachusetts, obviously. So like scattered around the United States, I ended up finding a wide variety of sources. I found some great sources um, in Princeton, Illinois, uh, more like in central Illinois. So yeah, it turned out there were just a ton of sources. And what I love about your source material too is, is you really paint this intimate picture of these women's relationship because you have, for instance, Charity's letters and Sylvia's letters and diaries. I think, and Charity was an incredibly prolific writer. I think she has something over a thousand letters. Maybe it's double that. I don't remember. But I'm curious, did you go through all of these letters piece by piece? So, okay. So yeah, one of the really wonderful things about the project is that the sources I ended up finding were so diverse, right? So there were like public records and private records, which give you a great uh, sense of balance, right? So I was able to find like tax records and census records real estate records, probate records, all of those sorts of public records that could really help me understand exactly what, how Charity and Sylvia's household functioned and how it was situated in their time and place. So in that way, I was able to write a social history based on it. And then I also found all of these private records, like you mentioned, the diaries and the letters and correspondence. Now, Charity was a huge letter writer, but actually very few of her letters remain because she instructed uh, the recipients of her correspondence to burn her letters. It's very common in the 19th century, not only for people who are like trying to hide something, which she was, but also just more generally, it spoke to people's, I think, a sort of 19th century concern with keeping the, the, the personal private. And so One of the, um, so I I found some of Charity's letters. One of the source bases I found was um, letters she had written to William Cullen Bryant's mother with whom she was lifelong friends. And uh, Sarah Snell Bryant lived a long time and didn't burn the letters. So I was able to find (laughs) like a batch of those, which I was very grateful for. Again, those probably ended up being saved because of the connection to her famous son. But most of Charity's letters were burned. So what I found instead was the correspondence she received from all the people that she wrote to. And that was, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but certainly hundreds and hundreds of letters, maybe it was over a thousand. 
because she spent her entire life writing letters. She was a wonderful correspondent. She had many correspondents. I would see the other half of the relationship and, and, and sometimes quotations from Charity peppered throughout the letters that she received, you know, where people would say, what did you mean by saying this? Or like, when you wrote me this, I felt, you know, so I would get like snatches of her voice. She also kept a diary and I know the diary existed. None of that survives, at least none that I've been able to find. She directed that her papers be burned. So uh, when she died in 1851, her partner Sylvia survived her by 17 years. And over that time, I think Sylvia kind of winnowed the collection of um, papers they'd accumulated over their lives together. And I think must have destroyed the diaries wholesale. I mean, I, we can always hope that they're like hiding somewhere. <laughs> right. <we'll stop> <laughs> light, but not that I've been able to track down. And then Sylvia also kept a daily diary throughout her life, most of which she destroyed, but a few years of it survived. And it's very detailed, like it is a daily diary. I think the years she kept were years that were really important in her spiritual journey, where she experienced moments of uh, conversion, like because of um, oh, spiritual revivals happening in her community. So I think that's why she held on to those years. Of course, I wish I could see the other years as well. <laughs> yeah. So as you kind of alluded to earlier, sources are incredibly important, not just in painting Sylvia and Charity's life together, but also situating the relationship within this broader context. And you do this excellent job of painting a picture of the late 18th and early 19th century American life that really brings this period to life for your readers. So I'm hoping you can help us do that today, kind of set the scene for our listeners. What did the post-revolutionary period look like in terms of women's lives and relationships? And how did this affect Charity and Sylvia? prior to the relationship? So the late 18th century is a moment of profound change for free, middling, Northeastern white women like Charity Bryant and Sylvia Drake, right? So their lives are very much shaped by race and class and region. Something happens in North America in the mid-18th century. It really precedes the American Revolution, but you begin to see a shift um, among these free white middling women of the Northeast, you begin to see a shift away from lives entirely dominated by the work of reproduction and maintaining a household. So you begin to see a new emphasis in like art, in literature, and in practice away from an just a a, a, an equation of women solely with their reproductivity towards um, a increased valuing of their rational minds and of their powers of reason. And that translates into an increasing stress on education and declining birth rates among, again, these women had the enough privilege to be able to try and restrict their birth rates. And that's a, a subset of, of course, women in colonial America, because enslaved women, for example, did not have the capacity to either pursue lives of, you know, like education or necessarily restrict their reproductivity. So it begins before the revolution. It, it, it 
And, and then it accelerates as a consequence of the revolution. That's the world that Charity and Sylvia are born into. So both of them are sort of at the vanguard of what becomes a larger trend throughout the 1800s of the women pursuing educations and diminishing the numbers of children they give birth to and centering their lives around things like religious faith or literature or other ways in which um, they seek what we would think of as like self-actualization, right? Like a self beyond the, the self of caring in relation to um, children and others. So Charity and Sylvia are really at the forefront of that. In colonial America, something like 98% of women were married over at some point over the course of their lives. And by you know the 1860s, at least 20% of New England women never get married over the course of their life. And so Charity and Sylvia are really at the beginning of this. They're among an early generation of women who make the choice to pursue education. Both of them really do to the best of their ability. They can't go to uh, college because colleges are not available for women yet when they're coming of age. And they also weren't wealthy enough to really uh, like go to academies for elite women or something. But they become school teachers, they read poetry, they exchange poems and letters with other school teachers. So they, they pursue this sort of life of the mind and a, and a specifically kind of American Protestant religious life of the mind and avoid marriage to men and focus their energies on their relationship with nephews and nieces, but, you know, not on, not on reproducing. So, yeah, so their lives are really at the vanguard of what becomes, I think, a, a transformation in women's lives in the 19th century and opens the window to, um, an increasing number of women being able to make the choice to center their lives on their erotic and romantic relations with other women or other people we identify as women in the sources. But more broadly, we, we don't always really know the gender of the people we're talking about in the past. So more inclusively, people who were uh, female-bodied and identified as women at the time. And this is, of course, the era when you introduce us to charity as this prolific writer, but also, or letter writer, but also prolific poet. I mean, she's a wonderful poet. And we meet some of the women that she's in relationships with prior to Sylvia during this period. I mean, it's pretty incredible what you were able to find out about both of these women. <laughs> how did they meet? And how did Charity use letters and poetry to court Sylvia? Again, such a beautiful story that you're able to share with us. And far from innocent declarations of love, Charity and Sylvia's correspondent is ripe with sexual innuendos, which many listeners, including myself, may have find surprising for this period. Yeah, so, I mean, Charity had, a, I think, something of a reputation. She was, like, a bit of a Lothario, right? She, like, went around romancing a, quite a number of women before she met Sylvia. She's older than Sylvia. She was born in 1777, so she's about uh, seven years older than Sylvia, who was born at the, the end of the war, or right after the war. And she, when she's working as a school teacher in uh, Massachusetts as a as a young woman in like the first decade of the uh, 19th century or even slightly before that she writes a lot of uh, acrostic poems which are this this poem form where 
the first uh, letter of each line spells out the name of the person for whom you're uh, writing the poem. So she writes, a, it's a common puzzle poem form of the uh, 18th century. And so she writes these acrostic poems for these various women and she writes some seductive letters, um, which like you said, are kind of like ripe with <laughs> all sorts of, you know, implied sexual content. It, very funny. I mean, she she and the women she knows, for example, they they all are very well acquainted with the hymnal poetry of Isaac Watts, which might seem like a source that would not lend itself to sexual subtext, but boy, does it right. So, um, you know, they have this sort of common set of illusions that they are familiar with, and they use it to communicate with each other. So anyway, she pursues like a variety of very intense relationships with other young women, and it gets her into trouble because while romantic friendship, as it's often called, is like a fairly widespread ideal among aspiring kind of genteel farming classes during this time, it's only okay as long as it is fitting within the you know heterosexual system of like romantic friendship in the service of young women eventually getting married. And there's something about charity, it's clear from the sources that she's triggering something in the people around her. And I speculate on what some people comment on, on her masculinity, um, which I don't think was signified through, let's say, like dress or hair, because she didn't really have the choice, even if she had wanted to dress in pants, it was not really possible for her. But I think probably something about her demeanor, something about the way she held herself, something about her, her confidence, you know, challenged norms of female modesty and challenged norms of femininity in a way that read to people as masculine. It definitely is not about her embodied self. Like she was short and small. Uh, her mother was consumptive. And I think she probably had the effect of that throughout her life in terms of um, how it had affected her fetal growth and her, and her body as an adult. She suffered from a lot of ill health, some of which might have been the consequences of her mother's infection with tuberculosis during her, her pregnancy. But she there's something about charity that is strikes people as masculine, and she also makes it very clear. She writes a letter when she's young to her family that she is never going to get married to a man. She she just says it, um, and she says it's a matter of principle. She's a little unspecific about what principle that is, which I think I wonder <laughs> about in the text. But she says she's never going to do it, and so these relationships she, she had with other women triggered concerns in the communities because they were not necessarily compatible with the um, heterosexual norm that uh, the communities required, right? So friendship is fine as long as the girls are still getting married, but charity was getting in the way of that. So she's kind of chased around. She's, she's like gossip springs up wherever she goes and she's sort of chased from community to community and has like fallings out with people. And that's ultimately what leads her in um, 1807 to go to uh, Weybridge, Vermont, where a relative of hers has married into the Drake family and is living up there. And so she goes to visit these people who she knew from Massachusetts, but have relocated up, up there. And while she's up there, she meets Sylvia Drake, who um, is, is a member of this extended family. 
and apparently falls in love. She's supposed to go back to Massachusetts. At the time that she has left to go up to Vermont for this kind of short getaway slash work trip in her view, she at that point is in a very intense relationship with another woman named Lydia Richards, um, who lives in a central Massachusetts town called Plainfield. And she and Lydia have been speculating about whether or not they can set up a household together. They very much want to. But uh, Lydia, who lives at home, is getting in trouble with her father and her family members for her relationship with Charity. So Charity kind of like gets out of town briefly to go up to Vermont, do some work, visit with some family members, relatives. Um, But when she's there, she seems to fall in love with Sylvia and then breaks Lydia's heart. Yeah, my heart went out for Lydia. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really heartbreaking. And Lydia's story, I mean, they eventually mend their relationship and all become friends. Um, And Lydia holds out from marriage until she is in her like mid 40s. So she she doesn't want to get married. She doesn't want to do the work of um, mothering, which is unbelievably onerous for women of this era, right? She doesn't want to do it. And then she finally agrees to get married when she's, I think, probably like past reproductivity, when she doesn't have to worry about getting pregnant herself. And she marries a man who's a widower and has a bunch of kids. And then she ends up more or less put into the position of an unpaid servant to her husband's son's family. You know, they, she, she and her husband are, get old and they have to live in the attic of this house and do all the cleaning and, oh, it's horrible. Yeah, she ends up as just a sister, exactly what she didn't want. And then, oh, that's uh, heartbreaking. And then she dies from the side effects of tuberculosis, which, again, a very common story in 19th century New England. It was just such an incredible story when you realize you're talking about how Charity, as you just mentioned, had to move on numerous occasions because of her suspected relationships with women. However, she and Sylvia were able to settle and build their lives together in Weybridge, Vermont, a place they called home for 42 years. So this is one of the astounding revelations of your book is that Far from the town being ignorant of the women's relationship, the community, in fact, knew and accepted a relationship that you identify, as you mentioned earlier, as a same-sex marriage. And this is just not something I think a lot of people today, myself included, would associate with what we would think of early American conservative Christian society. So how is this possible? Well, Weybridge ends up being this real Goldilocks place, right? So... The ideal of two women sharing a cottage together in some like remote pastoral vale is actually fairly widespread (laughs) at this time. So it's not unique to Charity and Sylvia. You see it in like the letters of aromatic and there's like um, famous archetypes like the ladies of Langlaughlin in Wales who uh, who are two kind of aristocratic Anglo-Irish gentry women who um, set up this household in Wales uh, and are visited by all of these sort of like Wordsworth or like Erasmus Darwin or whatever, <laughs> various like celebrities of the late 18th or early 19th centuries. And so um, this ideal of like setting up a cottage together 
in um, some remote vale is widespread, but it's very hard to achieve. And especially if you are not, you know, gentry women with independent incomes, um, like the ladies of Glen Glasson, right? So Charity and Sylvia don't have money. Like they don't have any money. They, the only money they're, even though I call them middling class or like farmers, even though they're educated, they have no funds. Charity's father was a doctor, but I mean, she, she comes from this large family. He doesn't offer her any support. He doesn't offer anybody any support. You know, all of her brothers and sisters are like struggling throughout their lives. Uh, Sylvia's uh, family are all, you know, farmers and most of them are well enough off to have their own land, but they have no um, excess above that. So for two women who have like no personal wealth, how do you make this happen, especially in the light of um, the fact that wages for women's like paid labor are incredibly low in the early 19th century, right? Um, so, you know, some women could support themselves independent of marriages. You could do that, like, let's say with the boarding house, if you are widowed, um, and owned property, that might be one way that you could keep yourself economically independent was by renting out rooms and doing food and contracting out the laundry for boarders or sex work, right, is another way that often a short-lived way because it's quite like ultimately, um, you know, physically deleterious um, form of labor, but it's another way you could uh, keep yourself maybe afloat independent of marriage or being a seamstress. But seamstress work is really lowly paid in the early 19th century. It's not the same as tailoring. So in the early um, 19th century U.S., tailoring is a male profession, and that's the sort of skilled work of knowing how to construct items of clothing when you don't have patterns, right? Because I know your listeners, this is what you guys do, right? There's no patterns. Right. No sewing machine. <laughs> There's no patterns. And so like sewing an item of clothing, you have to create, you have to use two-dimensional materials to create a three-dimensional item of clothing with movement in it. And that's tricky as anyone, I'm sure your listeners who's ever tried to sew an item of clothing without a pattern has discovered, right? It's hard to do that. It's, it's a real skill. And to do that without patterns, you have to have training in that knowledge. So anyway, they end up being able to survive in Weybridge because it is this Goldilocks place for them. Charity has learned the trade of tailoring back East in addition to uh, working as a teacher. She had been acquiring that skill, trained in part from her sister-in-law. So somehow they had acquired these skills. And she moved, that's you know, when she goes up to Weybridge, she is going to do tailoring work. Weybridge is a very small village. It is a frontier village. That part of Vermont had been emptied out of white settlers during the Revolutionary War by um, the, you know, indigenous and settler warfare that uh, took place in the region as like part of the larger revolutionary conflict. Um, and then it's resettled after the American Revolution. So it's a new village. And they need a tailor and Charity has this skill. So there's like this place for her and she um, is able to rent her own cottage, basically. 
basically it's not hard, like hard to go to college. It's like a 12 by 12 square foot, I mean, 12 by 12 foot by 12 foot room on the property of a woman who has been abandoned by her husband. So it's like this rare female landholder, Charity is able to rent an independent household for her in a way that doesn't seem sexually disreputable because her landlord is in fact a woman. And then she is able to have Sylvia come live with her in, in the guise of being her sewing assistant, which Sylvia's family members allow because it's valuable to them ultimately. Like their question, they, they have concerns about Sylvia living with this woman, but ultimately Sylvia's already, I think, marked herself off as like, I'm not getting married. I'm not, you know, she already has been like pursuing education. She's religiously serious. She's like, she's a bit of a problem in the family. And so this is like a place to put her. So they're able to secure this place in Weybridge because ultimately, you know, they run throughout their lives, they run a tailoring shop, which is hugely helpful both in supplying the community with clothes and also they are able to give work to other girls in the community and training in the profession. So they train other young women as tailors. So they provide that as a service. And then they end up providing a lot of other services to the community and to their family, which earn them enough goodwill to keep their household integrity despite the concerns it it does raise in the community. So other things they do, they work incredibly hard. Any excess funds they have, which is not much, they direct towards their nieces and nephews. They help their nieces, who are many, like they're Sylvia's many brothers and sisters have families with like 20 children or 11 children, right? These huge families. And so, you know, any money that these women can produce for the nephews and nieces is helpful. So they they help support some of their nephews and nieces to go to uh, college. They help train them, like I said, in tailoring. They also are the main supporters of the congregational church to which they belong, which because Waybridge is sort of in the boondocks, has a rotating cast of ministers. No one sticks there long because if you have any sort of talent, you're waiting for a bigger pulpit. The way these ministers are paid is by the contributions of the community. So small communities, a small payday. So you want to move to a bigger community with richer people who are going to pay you more to be your minister. So anyway, so ministers are like, you know, moving out in and out of the community, but Charity and Sylvia are are always supporting the church, Charity in particular, by maintaining a lot of uh, correspondences and relationships with ministers, but also they teach Sunday school. They run the religious uh, societies, the various charitable societies that start proliferating in the 1820s and 1830s. They um, provide medicine and sort of doctoring to people in the village. Remember, Charity, so Charity's father was a doctor. Her brother is also a doctor. So she has some kind of medical knowledge. In a number of ways, they sort of make themselves indispensable to the community. And it's enough. And then on top of that, Sylvia has um, family connections. You know, her family is one of the leading families in the era, and that in the area, and that insulates her from some degree of blowback. So even though many of her brothers refuse to come to the household and visit because they have issues, still the fact that she is a member of this 
of the Drake family protects her from, you know, too much aggression from people outside the family. And then one last thing that makes Bridge, I think, such a Goldilocks place is that because, again, because it's this rough community recently settled on the outskirts, the fact that Charity Bryant has this important name, that she's part of a respectable family that becomes increasingly associated with, like her brother, um, William Cullen Bryant's father, Peter Bryant, he is a, um, becomes a state legislature, legislator in Massachusetts. And then, you know, William Cullen Bryant sort of is becoming a notable person. So Charity's connection to this family that has a certain class cachet, even if they don't have money, makes her valuable to the town. It makes the town more in, in their eyes, not the words I necessarily use, but in their eyes, it, it, she makes the town a civilized place, like a respectable place. So again, it's just like Weybridge is just like Goldilocks place that the stars align and it makes it possible for them to achieve this quite widespread dream of women at the time of having a household with another woman, you know. And not even just a household. I mean, you talk a lot about how it's a marriage and how they themselves, I mean, the way that you show that they themselves even perceived it as a marriage, I think is is pretty incredible. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that was really exciting to me to find in the sources a number of direct references from people and within their own writings about that they understood their relationship as a marriage. So they use different metaphors over the course of their time together. But one of the sources I found that just you know, made me jump out of my seat and joy was a, a memoir written by a man who had grown up in the area. And he describes as a child going uh, to get a suit of clothes sewn by Cherry and Sylvia and it's like in the 1830s. And he captures them. This is in a handwritten memoir. You know, and he says that Charity was the husband and Sylvia was the wife. And everybody knows that. So he goes to the tailor shop. He's sort of like slightly confused by these two women who have this relationship, which is clearly different from the roles that uh, the women he's familiar with play in his life. Right. And he asks, and this is what he's told, you know, Charity is the husband and Sylvia is the wife. So that when I found that source, I was like, thank you. <laughs> so excited. But there are, you know, other sources that say, you know, very similar things, like William Cullen Bryant's letter that describes them in the language of the, the, the marriage from the Book of Common Prayer. Or, I mean, I found this letter uh, between Charity and her brother from when she first met Sylvia, where um, she is asking him to buy a ring for her because clearly she gave a ring to Sylvia to mark the beginning of their relationship. And they, you know, had a, a date that they considered their anniversary. And then if you look at Sylvia's diaries, you, you see that, you know, each year on this anniversary date, she writes a reflection on her relationship with charity, you know, um, and, and the ways in which it's been her marriage. And then, you know, one of the most moving set of documents that recorded the ways in which their relationship was understood by them and others as a marriage came after Charity's death, when Sylvia receives all these letters from friends and family acknowledging her as a widow. 
And people say, like, we know that, you know, or her brother says, like, you know, my sister's never married, but except that she, right. you know, did to this woman, right? So you see people writing these letters or they say to her, like, well, I know you weren't married, but I know you were and you are you are a widow, even though, you know, your relationship was with charity. So, I mean, it's really, you know, people struggle with it and they do a lot of like catching, you know, it's like a marriage. You see a lot of these formulations where people are like, um, and then occasional just like outright statements that it is right. a marriage. <laughs> What I loved about your book is it was written, I think it was published the year before, I believe, the Supreme landmark Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. But you talk about the debate that's happening at the time while you're researching and writing your book and how these women's relationship stands in direct contrast to kind of these arguments that, like, this is a 21st century concept, et cetera. And, and you're arguing, like, no, these relationships existed, and not only did they exist, but the acknowledgement of same-sex marriage existed. Yeah, right. I mean, I think it's in the Obergefell case where Justice Alito says that, you know, same-sex marriage is newer than cell phones, and it's not true. Yeah. And, you know, and I mean, it feels like a long time ago now, but for a long time, the history was, I think, leveraged primarily as a legal argument against same-sex marriage. And um, so you heard that a lot from conservatives who did not want to extend legal marriage to same-sex partners. And they'd say things like, all throughout history, since time immemorial, you know, marriage has always been between one man and woman. And of course, this is nonsense. Um, this is not true historically at all. Um, <laughs> but there is a sort of, you know, widespread assumption that like, marriage between men or between women or of course like we're living in an age now when we acknowledge and recognize that actually sex and gender are not binary but more diverse than that and so let us say marriages between people who did not necessarily identify as men and women you know I think there was this you know widespread assumption that these sort of marriages were just unthinkable in the past and actually you know Cherry and Sylvia um, I write this book about an entire book about them because the source base is so rich, but I also have an article that I published in the Journal of American History, I think in 2015, about the five, what I call the 500 year prehistory of same-sex marriage that like really collects a lot of examples over centuries of people absolutely in entering into relations that they described as marriages, that other people understood as marriages, that the concept of same-sex marriage was completely thinkable in the 1700s and in the 1800s and in the 1900s. And so, you know, the way history was being mobilized in opposition to same-sex marriage was popular memory, it was mythic, it was not based in the sources. And so I was happy to like, contribute something that said, 
Yeah, and I'll have to, oh, I'll provide a link to that article um, as well as your book, obviously, so that our listeners can delve into this topic uh, further because it, it's just so fascinating. And it's just that constant reminder that the present is always a product of the past and history matters in so many different ways. So Charity passed away in 1851, but Sylvia would go on to survive her by 16 years. She passed away in 1868. In an incredible homage to the women's marriage and love, Sylvia's nephew created a joint headstone for them both. And as you write, quote, in death, Charity and Sylvia realized a fantasy of eternal union expressed by many women lovers both before and after, yet seldom achieved. Their joint gravestone is a rare monument to the women's perseverance in spending their lives and deaths together. So you've shared with us this beautiful love story and one that prior to reading this, I would have argued was exceptional and rare. However, you also write in your book that, quote, the remarkable element of Charity and Sylvia's life together in the final assessment, maybe how unremarkable it was. So I'd love if you could tell us maybe what you ultimately hoped readers and listeners today will take away from Charity and Sylvia's story. I mean, ultimately, I do think it's a story of two ordinary people, right? and it's extraordinary in it, the preservation of this tale, but it's it's not exceptional. And there are other examples, and we know of those examples, and other examples of same-sex marriages or marriage-like relationships that were accepted by communities, accepted by relatives, accepted by friends. Yeah, and I mean, and I feel like there's more yet to be written about. I know there are more in the sources. I see it in the sources, you know. Um, People over the years have often asked me about, like, whether this is a a story that was exceptional to women. Like, could there be same-sex marriages between men in the early 19th century? And I think the answer is yes, there were. Yes, there could have been. And I have in my in my back pocket and my long list of like research books I'd like to write at some point, actually a very specific story of two men who had a relationship, I think, quite similar to Terry and Sylvia's at around the same time. So uh, at some point, I'll make it to the local archive where I believe their papers are kept. And I will see if there's enough to at least write a good article about them, because I'd love to get that story out there in the world, too. But, you know, yeah, ultimately, I mean, Charity and Sylvia were like fairly ordinary women. They were not, you know, I mean, yes, Charity wrote a lot of poetry. So did a lot of people in the 19th century. Hers is not especially good, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, you know, it is what it is. If you really like acrostic poetry or like Victorian poetry, you, know, you, you, you might enjoy it. But, um, you know, she was not like a... A unique genius. They were not, you know, fabulously wealthy. In many ways, they were not profound exceptions to their time and place. They had fairly um, conservative political and religious views. You know, they were upholders of, oddly enough, of gender norms in their community. One of the sources I found was um, a recollection by a woman in the I think it's from a speech she gives in the early 20th century about growing up in the village. And she had to deliver, I think, milk to Charity and Sylvia. And if she was a good girl, they would give her a cookie or something. And, you know, one time she and a friend go to deliver the milk in the morning 
And then she and her friend are like having fun um, rolling down the hill, you know, like you do turning somersaults down the hill. And when um, she delivers the military and Sylvia, instead of giving her a cookie, give her a note to deliver to her mother, you know, scolding her for the way in which she has behaved <laughs> in an unbecoming and, un, you know, unfeminine manner. So, I mean, you know, as much as like we, it would be great to see them as like wild, like queer rebels, like transgressing all rules and like in solidarity with the subordinated people of the world or something like they were not, they were religious, conservative, uh, stalwarts of their community. That's what allowed them to survive in their community, you know, and they carved out, you know, this exception for themselves where despite the fact that they were both women, Charity could be the husband. And uh, by force of personality and through a Goldilocks combination of circumstances, they were able to make that work. But, you know, they were, they were ordinary people. Well, thank you so much for all the work you did to bring their story to us and share this beautiful love story um, with our listeners today. Well, it's really my pleasure. So I thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you again, Dr. Cleves, for providing such wonderful insights into Charity and Sylvia's life and their love for each other. And dress listeners, it's important to say that Charity and Sylvia were not, of course, as uh, Dr. Cleves has made so clear, um, the exception to the rule. There were many, many same-sex relationships during this time or relationships that existed outside of, you know, the hetero norm of society. And this is something attested to in the HBO series, Gentleman Jack, that is now back. It's in its second season. I love this show. It documents the much more well-known love story of Charity and Sylvia's contemporaries, Anne Lister and Anne Walker, who were married in 1830s Britain. I highly recommend this show, as I do Dr. Cleve's wonderful book. Again, it's entitled Charity and Sylvia, A Same-Sex Marriage in Early America. Highly, highly recommend. Um, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you reflect on someone you love dearly in your life next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia who makes this show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.